All right. Hey, uh, welcome to uh, Life in Red Podcast, lifeinredpodcast.com, at Life in Red Podcast on Instagram and Life in Red Pod on Twitter. My guest today, we had a really uh, interesting and deep conversation that kind of went into a whole bunch of things about life. Uh, he is a an author. Uh, his book is now out. Right now it's on Amazon. You can check it out. It's called The Last Alias, True Stories in a Tale That Might Be. And it's kind of a chronicle of his life, which really, I mean, it, it encompasses a lot. He's a former ad man. He's a former uh, director and producer of anime. Uh, and then he he wrote this book, and and we talk about a lot of things, in, including you know his struggles, his triumphs, um, you know addiction, coming out as gay to his family, a, a bunch of different things. And I thought it was a really good, all encompassing conversation on kind of what life can be. You can follow him on Twitter. You can follow him and go to his website. Uh, it is uh, stephenfoster.com. Stephen with a seven instead of the V. So please give it up. For my guest, Stephen Foster. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. All right, boom, here we go. Mr. Stephen Foster, my man, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's fun. It's a, it's, I like the podcast a lot. Thank you. Yeah. When you re, when you reached out, I, I we were joking off mic. I was like, I, I thought it was like a, a spam mail or something, but uh, <laughs> to, to, to connect with you, I think it's, it's really cool. And uh, you are, I think you've lived enough lifetimes almost for one person uh, over and over again. Um, you know, you're a former ad man, you've worked in anime, which I know we'll get into all that stuff, but you have a book. And my first question is, you know, you've lived all these different experiences in a bunch of different industries. Like, why did you decide now was the time to put it out in a, in a book? Uh, I've had some like hard knocks uh, right about the end of my anime career. I had some things happen and that uh, basically just kind of threw me for a loop. And after the wreckage, I would like, didn't know who I was anymore. And when I went looking for myself, I thought I would find like one neat person and there was this entity there, a me. And I didn't find me, I found all these shadows of me, these fragments, these aliases, as it were. And not the true me, not the whole me. And so I thought the real me had to be hiding behind all these. So I would locate and kind of like psychically find each of those personas that I would use and then get those away and hopefully behind that would be the real me because the theory basically is like you're not really the same person to your mom as you are to your lover as you are to your employer as you are to your dad i mean that's so uh which one of those is the real us or is it not any of those it's someone else we don't know and i think it's most of the times i think it's someone we don't know that's a that's a really good point uh the many aspects of who we are, because I know at work, as much as I like to think so, you know, I'm more professional than on my podcast. I'm a little more loosey-goosey. So that's it's a really good point that there's so many facets to just one person. In your description, you have, you know, you saw 23 
different versions of, of yourself, or these identities that you kind of identified. What were some of those? What were like maybe the bigger ones that like stood out for you? Well, I, I identify with my job. Like I think a lot of people do. I don't know. That may be an American thing. I don't know, but I just, so writer, director, producer, that's definitely one side of me. Um, I'm a father. So that's one, uh, I'm gay. So that's another one. Uh, and I've been like heroic in some places. I've been a good friend in other places and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, so a lot of those like that. Yeah. Like those and more. And there's some that I'm not real proud of that I wish there wouldn't be in the book. There's a couple of them that like the other man and the Punisher, I wish weren't in the book, but if I was going to be honest about the concept about looking for yourself, I had to, be honest about it and show everybody. That's in, so. I mean, that must be a really hard kind of thing to do. I know with myself, and I'm very outspoken about my own mental health and the goods, the bads, the, the really, excuse me, the real, like the, the really bad stuff. But I still don't share everything. Not, not there. There are still certain aspects of of myself that I haven't shared online, even though I'm very candid and open about it. How hard was that decision to, like you said, go into these things that you really aren't proud of in, in great detail, knowing kind of in the climate, especially now that we're in, that that could very much be perceived as, you know, something maybe negative or, or come back to, to haunt you. Uh, like what went into that thought process and how difficult was it for you? God, that's such a good question. Um, I, it, it was kind of like, I didn't have any other choice. If uh, this isn't really the book I wanted to write, I dreamt about writing a fiction or you know a novel or anything. And then these are the stories that just wouldn't leave me alone. And so I followed those to the path that they, they led me down, but I didn't want to, Oh God, I didn't want to be embarrassed, but then I just realized that was just another part of me that was like taking over the not to be embarrassed part. It was like my, my ego instead of being truthful. I mean, have you ever been with someone? And I think this is how we are is that we're with someone and we're talking and then we wish, Oh, I wish I could tell them this. I, I just wish I could give a little bit more honesty about this. And then we don't that we're, we just hold that back. And when, if we would be honest with that, the person would be usually accepting. It's like, it's like, I think I'm crazy. But then I ask my friends, do you feel this way? And they're all like, yes, they're all like, exactly. And, but you in your own head, you think you're alone. You think you're the only one who feels these things. And that's just a, a lonely existence. And I thought if I would be honest about mine then other people could be honest about theirs and they'd read the book and they wouldn't feel so alone. Mm, that That's true. I think we all have a little bit of, I don't want to say darkness, but maybe aspects of ourselves, like you said, that are uh, maybe less than favorable. And a lot of us do a really good job on either suppressing that or, or hiding it. And I think that might affect us in deeper ways than we might think uh, that, you know, affects us in, the, in this day-to-day -day life that, that we try to leave where we're not truly our authentic selves. And, you know, to me, that's kind of sounds like what you were, you were grappling with. Yeah, very close to that. I mean, and it's even more complicated because of COVID. I mean, COVID's just mm -hmm. thrown us 
all for a loop. And I put a preface in the book because I wrote it pre-COVID and I put a preface on it that said like, I don't know if this is the right time to write a book about finding yourself. And then a couple of the reviewers and readers have said like, no, 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 this is the perfect time to be thinking about who you are because we're all having to rethink who we are because we're all, part of my language, we're all fucked. I mean, we're just all fucked. <laughs> I mean, it's horrible. It's just awful. I just keep thinking, like, when is this going to end? And it's like, I don't think it's going to for a while. Yeah. Be stuck with yourself for a long time. That's, 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 that's it, right? Thing. There's there's so many of us, especially those who, you know, young people, uh, especially that we we maybe don't live with somebody else. We might live on our own. We might have roommates, which is which is fine. But a lot of us has been have been forced to isolate. Um, and yes. be alone with our own thoughts without sort of the dis- distractions that normal every day could bring us. And I'm, I'm not saying distracted, distractions negatively, but like, you know, going out with your friends for a drink or, or hanging out or going and having a big family gathering or to the barn, whatever yeah. that, the, that might be. The like things. Yeah. Now we're forced to sit here. And I know I, I struggle with this a lot, but like sitting there with myself and my own thoughts and being like, it almost is that like, okay, who am I? And now I've like explored all these different parts because I've had the time to really sit there and, and think about it that aren't necessarily like it's given me a chance to work on myself, I guess, basically, which, which is good, but it, that's like, that's some scary and hard work as well. It's, and you're right that, that I think we're all in, in a way going through that right now, just because everything is especially so uncertain and, and we don't know what's going to bring. And there's so much volatility. And I mean, especially where you are uh, with, you know, the state of the election and kind of how everything's going with that. Like, it's just, <laughs> there's a lot of unknowns. Yeah, it, it's crazy. It's crazy. It seems like everything's converging at once. And I really feel bad for, although I think there are great white hope, is the kids. I just, <laughs> I mean, how do teenagers, and especially one's college, who are right, they're graduating and they're ready to go out into the world and they had it tough with a shitty economy, but now they have no economy and everything's going bad. And what do you do? What do these guys do? I just feel so bad for them. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was I hope that if they could just see this guy struggling and the hell that I went through that as and this sounds so new agey, hopeful <laughs> shit. I hate that, but you know, but you do, you somehow you come out the other side. And if you would have asked me this three years ago, I would have told you you were insane, that there was no way I would be able to come out of it. And that uh, I, I wasn't going to be that person anymore, but, uh, but it happened. I, I lived it. Mm-hmm. So getting back into that kind of the book. So, I mean, you broke it down very interestingly that every chapter is kind of like written by one of these, these personas that you've kind of developed and you've broken it into these stories. It's like, it's you, but it's all these different people. And I mean, it's so multifaceted, a, a writer, like you said, the, the producer, director, a man of faith, um, as a gay man, a survivor, all these different things. I, I, I want to talk about three, because I know you mentioned that there was kind of like these three I guess, traumatic or, or pivotal, pinnacle moments in your life that kind of really s- steered this, the d- direction of your life. What was the first one? What was this, the first life event that, that really set you on the path into where you are now? 
uh, I was uh, going along, I was at a career high, everything was great, everything was wonderful, and I had these, these strange pains that were occurring. And I just ignored them and was blowing it off. And then after a while, it would, they would become worse. And I had a joke about it. I was like, well, someone's got the voodoo doll because that's what it felt like someone stabbing me. And then a friend of mine said, I'm so sick of you yelling just in the middle because I would get a pain. I go like, ah, and she was mm -hmm. like, you need to go to the doctor. And so uh, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Oh. And, that, and that's when everything went to hell. And then everything fed off of that. I went, had mental illness. I got depressed. I had been drug addiction. It was, it was, uh, it was a triple whammy and, and I lost my career and it was, it wasn't fun. You know what, Ryan? It wasn't fun. Yeah, no, I mean, we laugh about it, but that, like, that's heavy stuff. And that, that goes, I think we're seeing that a lot now. And, and just even going back to COVID, I know I read an article yesterday that uh, how opioid um, addiction is and overdosing has skyrocketed since the pandemic, right? Because even going back to what we were talking about, being alone with ourselves, people being in pain, all these different things. Um, if, if you don't mind, and we, and we can totally skip it and to just whatever, but I'm curious, you know, what led to the addiction? Was, was there perhaps issues beforehand and, and then it just kind of, you know, uh, slowly snowballed or was it like an immediate thing? You, you maybe took something from pain and, and then it kind of just got a little out of control. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly how it was. I was, I think maybe I was always primed or, you know, or I, I was mentally ill before and I just, this is all it took to like be the catalyst to turn everything. But but as far as the drugs go, um, I was with somebody, uh, uh, I was hooked up with a guy and I don't usually do drugs with anybody I'm tricking with or anybody, any guy I'm picking, anybody I'm dating. Let's do, put the form the nicer way of saying it, dating. And uh, he said he was gonna get high and I was like, no, I, no thanks for that. And he said, it'll take your pain away. And I was like, that exactly what I'm looking for. And then I did that and to keep working and to, to not hurt anymore. Did, did people know right away? Was it very obvious or were you able to sort of maintain that, that day-to-day -day life in, in your career um, and then it just kind of escalated or like was it a pretty rapid uh, downfall? No, for a while it was, I was able to like, you know, right. control it and it was doing it. And then I just, I couldn't, I'd, I'd get just manic and, and it was just, it was really unpleasant. And I it was really not good. It just wasn't good. I don't know. Have you ever had anything like that? I haven't. No, I've been uh, fortunate that. I yeah, that's good. And I never thought it would happen to me either. And I, it's just. That's, that's the point right there though, that I think we have that awful stigma and um, perception of, you know, drug addicts and, and what that is. And we were like, oh, well, you know, maybe they have trauma as a kid and then they, they ended up here, you know, that we, we kind of think of them as like the, the lower class of society when really, you know, exactly as you said, you were a successful businessman, like accolades, awards, and you just found something that could numb pain from a situation that you had zero control over 
and then it took over. Like, I think that's so important for people to understand about addiction and about, you know, mental illness in general, that I think I would say of most people who become addicts, especially to pain medication and opioids and, and, and alcohol, that they never think it would be them. And there was no maybe thing that led up to that point. It just, it happened for a certain reason. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, oh shit, look where I am now. It's, it's, you're exactly right. It's, and we, I don't know why, I don't know if it's innate human nature or what, but we do, we look at the mentally ill, the poor, anyone struggling that they, there's a, it's a character flaw within them or, or something that they've done wrong and, or from a religious aspect, because uh, I'm a Christian, not a right wing, Republican, evangelical, not that kind of thing, but a Christian. And we look at them as like, uh, well, obviously they deserve it. They, they, they've, they haven't done anything. And if you watch, sorry to offend anybody, but you watch Republicans give a, a quote and they'll be very quick to say, well, it's, well, what did Jared Kushner say? Something about like the black, if you're black, they don't, they don't want to like succeed. It's, it's like their thing that yeah. we'll fix it. And it's just, it's, you just come from this place of judgment. And I don't know if that's, human nature or maybe it's our own fear that we could be like that in a second mm -hmm. i have no idea what it is but we all seem to do it um, and there's nothing yeah so you know are you are you healthy now are you um like is everything kind of corrected itself and how did you how did you get there how did how did you go from you know losing it all to kind of building back the pieces uh actually i probably would have died if it wouldn't have been for mm -hmm. friends uh they found me in my house i had the windows all the front windows were boarded up with plywood and drywall hammered to the windows so you can see anything oh, wow. and then uh and a friend came over and he uh came in and he saw it and he was like we're in trouble and he called a good friend of mine and they put me in, they got me in touch with uh, some doctors and therapy and, and it was through therapy. And so I got clean. The drug thing wasn't really that hard. It was the rest of it, but mm -hmm. the, the depression lasted two, three years. And it was, I mean, there were just days where I was just like, just every day crying. I mean, every single day I, I look at my face and I go like, I looked okay before this happened and now two years of solid crying. My, I don't have bags under my eyes. I have lines of luggage. It's just crazy. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, it's just, uh, and then through intense therapy and honesty and, and time and time. That's the thing that sucks is that you want things to be over tomorrow. And rarely does that happen. It's just, it just, things take time. It's true. It's, I know I've mentioned that a, a numerous amount of times in so many different kind of contexts, uh, whether that's like racial change or, or mental illness change reform, all those types of things that the unfortunate part is, is it takes time and a lot of work. And yeah, you want the answer right away. And, and that's really difficult. I'm wondering. Which is really hard. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I, which is what's really tough about being young is that you're just accelerated and you want everything now and everything tomorrow. And it's weird because now I'm like almost 60 and I just want to like 
reach out to all these kids and go like, you're not going to understand this at all. You're not going to believe me at all, but it's going to take some time. What you're thinking now isn't going to be the way you are and that every day is precious and you're going to, and, and it's just, and they're not going to believe me. So I, I hope like, I hope under 30 reads the book because I just, I want them to know that it's, okay, the one thing, I, there's a couple of chapters in the book that talk about my parents. And the one thing, which I don't talk about in the book, that I always had against my parents is they never sat me down when I was a teenager and told me, life is going to kick you in the teeth. And when it does, you need to react thusly, or you need to be this way, or you need to be that way. And that, so then when I was walking around like a dumbass, and life did hit me, I was like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is happening? And I, and I just, uh, it was always like a disservice. I probably have erred on the wrong side and told my kids <laughs> to, mm. <laughs> that life is terrible and horrible and you better be ready for it. But um, I don't know. I don't know. Do you, did, you, did your parents tell you that? Did your parents, did you, were you ready for it when it happened, when life came? Yes and no. My parents did a, uh, they did a good job. They, they, prepared me. Uh, my parents and I have always had a fantastic open relationship and even more so now as I'm older. But, you know, um, at the time when I, when I was 16, they were basically like, you're anything you want, you're going to have to pay for anything you need until, you know, you're out 18 and out of the house will, will provide. So when I was 16, you know, I had to get a job and if I wanted to get food or, or go with my friends, like I had to pay for it myself. And I, yeah. And I think as you like at the time, I'm like, this is bullshit. Cause like my friends, <laughs> you know, my friends, I had some friends that were, you know, their parents would pay for everything. And, you know, so at the time I'm like, well, what the hell's going on? Why, why, why do I have to do it the hard way? But, you know, like you said, like as a young person kind of growing up to where you are now that you don't understand it in the moment, but in hindsight, when you can look back, you're like, oh yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, I guess that was good. Thanks, mom and dad. And that's so hard because then you have to look at it and go like, you have to admit, you have to look at yourself and go, I was fucking wrong. I didn't know what I was saying. And they were right. And that's a hard thing to do. It's, it's hard. I think that's like a lot of this issue with Trump lovers and that, that you're now you're humiliated and you have to like say you were wrong and people yeah. just don't, you don't like admitting you were wrong or saying that your hero's not a hero or that the guy that was on trial, you believed in is like, well, no, he did kill someone. And then you're like, I was wrong to believe that. And I mean, it's just, it's difficult. Our emotions just play such a key role in us. And I think that we don't know our emotions as intimately as we should, because we don't know ourselves as intimately as we should. That's, that is a hundred percent true. And, and the big thing too, is what I'm kind of an advocate for is this, this uh, path to redemption. Now, I mean, that, that takes on a lot of different forms and I think there's varying levels, but you look at people who've made mistakes in the past um, that get crucified for it now, um, whether justly, unjustly, that's not for me to decide, but I think if we want people to make amends and to be better people and to grow and change, we need to have some sort of empathy and sympathy for these people who, who understand that they've made mistakes and are now working to correct those wrongs. I look at people who were, 
you know, skinheads, neo-Nazis, members of the KKK who have now come around and are trying to keep people from going into those organizations using their own experience. I'm like, you were basically like the worst type of person in the world, but now you're doing some good and, and you're working hard to do good. Does that make you a bad person now? Some people would say yes. Some people would say no. And there's a lot of debate, but I think we need to leave room for people to be like, okay, you know what? I fucked up. Here's what I'm doing to make it better. And people are like, okay, like good. Like we maybe not forgive depending what you did, but we can at least move forward and create a space where, you know, you're the rest of your life isn't necessarily going to be completely over and harmed from it. Exactly. And the, the best example of that has been, and I'm not going to get their names right, but the woman in Central Park, the white chick, right, who's yep. with the dog, and she, and then she yelled at the black guy, the black guy said, can you please put your dog on a leash? And she was like, no. And then she called the police. She was like, there's a black man harassing me. He's going to, and, and then the storm came down on her and everyone with legitimacy were like, you're a bitch. You're horrible. You're the worst person in the world. And everyone ganged on the, it was like smear the queer. We all jump on her. We beat her up. And the guy who, the black guy who was offended was like, I'm not pressing charges. She's already been punished enough. You guys have been horrible to her. Just let her go. I'm not doing anything to her. And that was such a loving gesture. It was like, you know, okay, she's been spanked. Everybody lighten up and give her a break. And I thought that was just such a beautiful and very Christian thing to do. Um, to say, it's interesting that you bring up the, the Christian thing to do. Um, just because, you know, there's that, I, I mean, Christianity gets a very bad rap, uh, as I'm sure you know. Oh, I, told my mom, I told my mom once, I said, I'm more in the closet about being a Christian than I'm a faggot. <laughs> I mean, that's something. That's something to say. Um, well, they're terrible. They're the, but go ahead. What were you saying? No, go ahead, please. Oh, the, they're just, they're horrible. They, it's, I mean, if you look at, if you, that's why I don't tell people I'm a Christian because it's just like, I always think I'm going to be the worst representative of it. And I think maybe I'm maybe the best representative of it, but the, the, the media forward Christians we get are the ones who are like hateful and mean and judgmental. And, you know, they vote on these policies that are like, do you want to feed the poor? No, we don't want to feed the poor. We don't want to know welfare. And they just, everything is just so awful and, and mean. And so, and, and not anything like Christ said. Mm. I mean, he was like, if you have something, cleave it to the other and give your half to someone else who doesn't have it. And feed the poor and heal the sick and, and be there with, you know, I think it was a metaphor, but prostitutes. You be there with the people that you don't think are the right ones of society, or, and that's who you minister to. That's who you bless, and that's who you hang out with. And the religious right just seems to be anathema to that. They just it doesn't compute with them. They don't like it. It bothers them. And I think they just have a very. Gia Tolentino is a really good writer uh, for the New Yorker, and she just has a book coming out. Called, or had a book come out there called. It's called mirror something, mirror image or something. And she has a really good treatise on that about how 
the religious right is very judgmental and it's all covering for any other of their sins. It's just really interesting to me. Oh, sorry. That was right. oh, that's okay. Um, I, I'm curious. Um, do you feel, do you, <laughs> do you sorry, um, sorry. Do you feel there is a, a contradiction in being gay and Christian? Do you, do you feel kind of like an internal pull um, being like, is this correct? Is this right? Because there's so much kind of confusion and especially from me who doesn't understand being either uh, that seem to pull away from each other when it comes to those two subjects. That's so, that's such a good question. I, and, and it's so true to the, uh, <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I did. I had a really long time. That's probably why I got, that's why I got married because I was just, I was influenced by religion and I was thought it was wrong. And I mean, I was probably 90, 10 bisexual, but I shouldn't have been married, but I did love my wife and I thought it was the right thing. And then after a while, it was like, do I do the thing I think is right or do I live truth? Which is probably more holy or more honorable than doing what you think is right. So I just had to, I had to come out and just was like, I was miserable. And so I, I mean, somehow it, it, God and I wound up having a peace about it. He doesn't seem to be all freaked out about it. And, and I, I seem okay with it now too. So I don't know. It's just, and you wouldn't think that by the example of the religious right, you would, mm-hmm. they just don't see that kind of thing. But like, can I ask you a question? Really? Mm-hmm. Is it bad if I turn the interview on wrong? But can I ask you a question? Yeah, for sure. It's a conversation, not an interview. <laughs> okay, cool. So like, you said you said Christian Christianity and homosexuality were like neither of you, but like I talk to God like all the time, mm. all day. I mean, I just turn to Him all the time, whether it's good stuff, or good shit. I just like, oh my God, you're so awesome, thanks so much, or bad shit. I'm like, Lord, what the fuck is going on? I'm pissed. Where do you, if you don't, because I would just die if I didn't have mm. that. That I didn't have someone to, to turn to and just talk to all day or whatever like that. And I know it sounds stupid or gay or weird, but do you? What do you do with all that energy and that those questions? And even though I don't get a lot of mine answered, there's something wonderful about knowing there's someone there listening to me ask them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I see what I see what so you're what saying. And it's funny. I was just listening to um, an interview with Matthew McConaughey, and he brought up something similar to, to what you were talking about. And I think, you know, while I am not religious, um, I don't have a inclining to believing or not believing in, in God or gods or, you know, whatever religion people practice. Um, I, I just, I just have never, I, I really appreciate the philosophy and the, the history of it. And I, I love learning about it. I just don't, have a personal belief or practice in it. I kind of just tend to live my life. I guess to answer your question, um, I talk to my, I talk to myself. Um, I have internal dialogues about everything. Uh, you know, like, did I say the right thing? Did I, did I do this right? Did I do this wrong? Should I do this? You know, 
part of that is, you know, my mental illness and the anxiety and going back on, on all these different scenarios in my life being like, ah, I wish I did that different. I wish I, I did this instead. But what I really try to do is, okay, you know, here's the mistakes I've made. Here's the mistakes I'm making. Here's what I've learned from it and making sure I implement that into the rest of my life as I move forward. Um, and I do that for my career, for my podcast, for my relationships. You know, we were talking just off mic about, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend and I breaking up at the, the pandemic. You know, it's me looking back on those things and, okay, where did I go wrong? What did I do? What do I wish I did differently? And then making sure that in the future relationships that I remember what I've, I've done and want to correct and then make sure I do that in the future. So I don't think it's a lot different than, I guess, talking to God. I just, I talk to, you know, maybe I am talking to God in some, some co- subconscious way. Yeah, yeah. That's, I just, as soon as you said that, I was like, holy shit, maybe that's, that's what he's doing. I, I didn't never see that until you said it. That was exactly. Amazing. So, you know, maybe that's it. I don't know. But I'm addressing myself with myself and just having these in, internal talks. And let me, can I let me ask? Can I ask about the girlfriend? Like, sure. how long you all? How long you all together? It was only a year and a half. Um, I say only, that's long, but that's a long time. You know, um, I've, I, I, uh, I don't, know, I don't know how to say that. I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but I thought it would be last a lot longer. I'll just, I'll just say Did that. Did you so. share with her? Were you honest with? I was, I was talking with a friend of my son's the other day, mm-hmm. and. I just, and my son, I asked him a couple questions and my son was like, you know, do you see what I have to put up with? And he was like saying that, asking me questions. And it was, but I'd known this guy a little bit enough to fuck with him that he's a very quiet guy. He doesn't talk a lot, but I asked him questions and he, he started talking about this girl and we gave me answers and I asked him back and forth and back and forth. And after uh, I asked him what went wrong in his relationship and he looked kind of like shell shocked and he says, well, I kind of like, I'm not really honest with her. And then she really doesn't share stuff with me. And then all we're left with is the stuff we don't like about each other. And it just gradually ends. Mm. And I was like, that's so sad. And he said, that's not, oh, fuck. Popular man And he over said, that's, I know, right? It's, it's my parents. Because, <laughs> you know, it's all fucking sales calls, of course. Um, but they, uh, uh, but he said that he, that was the most he talked since COVID started. Mm. And I was like, is that because we're not asking the questions? Are we not relating to people? Did you, were you really, was he not honest with her? And that's why, I mean, he basically said that. He said that he didn't share, so she didn't share either. And they had nothing left. So when you were with your girlfriend, were you honest about stuff? I mean, did you ever like, like this? Did you ever tell her like, fuck, I got this thing to do tomorrow. And I'm really nervous about it. I'm really afraid. What do I do? did you ever, were you that vulnerable? Did you do that kind of stuff? No, I was, I was honest. Yes. I would talk about that stuff. Um, but when I, I wasn't as honest in some cases as I should have been. So as an open person, you'd think I would share everything, no problem, but that wasn't always the case. And this is an issue I have, you know, not just in that relationship, but, but with everything that even though I share, and I have no problem being honest and talking about things. There are things I keep to myself in certain situations because I, 
I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to put this on to somebody else because I, I, you know, maybe they're having a bad day and I, I had a really bad day, but I'm like, you know what? Like, this isn't about me. I'll make it about them. And it, it has affected my relationships in, in a lot of different senses. So, you know, that's, wow. the thing that's the thing I'm trying to work through in, in my own life and my own therapy and, and, and everything, because it's, it's one of those things where me not trying to be a burden makes me almost a burden or it breaks trust or it breaks a bond. And even though in the moment I think I'm doing the right thing, I look back and I'm like, fuck, I shouldn't have done that. Or I should have said something or, but you know, and that's what I mean by living and learning. Um, I'm I'm fortunate that I can, I can recognize a lot of things about myself and think very cerebrally that I know when I make a mistake and I can hear criticism and correct it. So I can reflect a lot and, uh, you know, try to make, make it better in the future and, and other things, but just it, that's also kind of how my brain works that it just always kind of is telling me I'm not good enough. Uh, and it, it don't do this because they're going to hate you for it or, or whatever, or feeling very yeah. insecure in the relationship being like, they hate me or they're mad at me. Oh, this and that, even though I know they're not, but I always just hold that thought anyway, or that it's going to end at any time. So, I mean, that that's been a problem since I've been 18. So uh, it's not easy to get I, over it. I think we was whole that kind of thing. And, and like, again, that's why I wrote the book was, so I figured if I could be honest, like, well, I, like I, I addressed my sexual self in the book and there's a warning right before you hit that chapter that says like, you know, what you're about to read is graphic. So if you, you should maybe if you're sensitive readers should move to the next chapter. And I uh, put that in there. I didn't want to on the Eva publication. I almost killed it because I didn't want it to be in there. But a couple of girlfriends said, you have to put it in there because it's the most honest one and a bunch of honest stories and every girl will relate to this. And I think we don't share these. Th- I figured if I could share these things, then maybe other people would feel better about sharing their things. And to your point, you said, if you're not sharing, it was almost like a break in the relationship or you were hurting the relationship. And I don't think it's quite that didactic. I think it's more that you really do a disservice to both parties, because if you flip it, if you knew that someone was hurting your friend and they didn't share it with you, mm-hmm. you would feel just like a loss. I mean, you would just, you just like, why wouldn't you? Cause you, cause I think as, as people, I think that's just our nature and our spirit. We want to minister to each other. We want to help each other. And that's just the way we're built. That's just the way we're made. And when we withhold that, we, personally don't get the opportunity to be healed and they don't have the opportunity to be an instrument of God to heal you, mm. which is to me the best excuse for being honest and sharing with someone, even though it's tough. And even though it's hard, I just find nine times out of 10, they're right with you. And they totally understand what you're saying. When you thought you were a freak, they're like, no, they totally get it. And they're like equally as recognition of it. One of my favorite quotes is um, treat yourself as if you were someone you loved. And I've tried to implement that in my life because so many times, you know, like you just said, you know, if, if I knew how much, or if anybody, if we knew how much we were hurting somebody with maybe something that we thought was protecting them, you know, maybe that would be different, but we're so stuck in that moment that 
you know, like it, it's almost like help yourself, help that other person and, and you can really fix it up. And, and yeah. so many instances that, that we don't do that and, and it ends up falling apart and happens to so many different people of all sorts of different, you know, sexual preferences. Like I think that might just be like a, an innate human feature of, of how we interact and, and communicate. I think so too. And it's really weird. And if I can be so goofy or stupid or whatever, I mean, like, like when you're talking and I don't, your audience probably can't, they don't know this because it's audio, but I can see you, but you can't see me. And so I'm seeing you talk. And when you say these things, I have this like huge, and it may be because I'm a dad. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know mm. but I just want to have this big, like my arms want to grab you and hold you and say like, it's, it's okay. And, and just, uh, there's this huge in my heart caring that I have for you right now that I think just is because like, I, I just met you, I'm talking with you and it only takes what we've been talking like 10 minutes or 20 minutes. And it's like, I want to help you. I want to know you better. I want to relate to you. I want to solve anything I can for you. I just want to be there for you. And I think that's how we are as people. But we don't think people are like that. We're afraid they're going to judge us. They're going to do this. And because we judge a lot in society, but I don't think that's really our nature. I think our nature is more to be helpful and to understand and to, to lift each other up. No, absolutely. You're right. Um... I want to, it's not the greatest segue, but I did want to transition because I did have a question going back a little bit. Um, when sure. you, you know, like you said, decided to live free and live who you were, how did that affect your family and, and your kids? Um, you know, that's always something that I've always been kind of curious about, you know, especially when you have people uh, like Caitlyn Jenner or or people of that nature where I don't know if the family always knew, um, but I'm just curious on how that, that impacted your family and, and, and how it impacted you. Uh, I, the, my kids were really great about it. They, uh, but I, I came to the decision when we, they were very young, it was like, if I leave now, they'll be babies. And if I leave in 10 years, they'll be very cognizant of this and they'll be very aware of two families being, a family being ripped apart and mommy and daddy splitting. But if I do it now, yes, I'm going to fuck her and leave her with two kids that are very young, but it's better for the kids. And so I left, I gave her the house, the car, everything. And, and, uh, and so we did that. My parents were very, and there's a story in the book about it. They found out I was gay because I was in a coma once. And the doctor said, well, he got this because he's gay. <laughs> the other doctors came in and said, no, that's not why he got it. But they were not very thrilled about it, but never talked about it. They were very reserved about it. But then one day we were in the kitchen, this kitchen that I'm sitting in right now. And my mom said, you know what? We were not very supportive when you came out. We didn't understand it. We didn't, we had a hard time with it. And I just want to say that your dad and I are sorry about that. And I would never have thought that that would have had an impact on me. I just, I would have thought that would have been bullshit. I wouldn't care. And it, it just was like, holy shit, that's what I was dying to hear. So it's just, again, 
when you live your truth, God, this sounds such a fucking greeting card. I'm just, it sounds so gay. But it's like, if you live your truth, it's just like Jesus said, the truth will set you free. It's weird. It's weird. Mm. That's good. So did that answer, did that answer your question? It is. Yeah. And you know, I just always, you hear so many different stories and reactions on, on how that is. And I just couldn't imagine being, you know, I, I don't know if you felt trapped, if that's the right word, but I can't imagine, you know, you're living one life when really you have this, this, you know, who you are, like you're kind of like suppressed, but now you also have responsibilities. Like now you have people depending on you and that emotional kind of, you know, battle. And, and, you know, I, I'm going back to just what we were talking about. I'm, I'm sure you, you, you use talking with God and, and everything to lead you to this decision, but it's just, I mean, that, that's, I just, it's hard. I, I just to even put it lightly for me, imagining it like that. I couldn't just imagine how hard it must've been. Well, and I think like the books, I think that's like what the book talks about is that we segment ourselves. We show this person and we embrace like, like, like uh, uh, the husband, like fifties angle, you know, they're upstanding and they love kids and love the wife and, but maybe they want to be a little bit wilder. Maybe they want to do this. Maybe they want to do that. But they put forth this persona because that's the one that's accepted. That's what the one they think that they need. And they rely on that at the expense of maybe the self or the housewife who really wants to live. I want to go back to work or I want to do this. And, but she's like, I need to be the wife and the mother. And so I keep in this, I show this side to my family, but I don't show them the real me. Uh, an artist or painter or a, a politician, anything. And that's just a trap we get into. It's just, it's, we fall into these roles and we find it's better or easier or more familiar if we just keep living those roles instead of looking inside and saying, well, this may not be totally correct. Which, and I just did, I just got that through this conversation that I didn't have that insight before which is what I love about the book is that you start talking with people about it and you wind up, the stories are about me in the book. That's, it's a, it's a book about me, but everyone winds up seeing themselves in the, in the stories and reflecting on them on, on their own selves, which is what I couldn't, I hoped, I, I hoped so much for, and that's what's happening. That's awesome. Um, I'm curious about, so you have a chapter called the part, part of it. And it says, uh, you know, you're in New York, should have stayed home. What, what's, what happened in New York? I was there for business. I was doing a, a DVD extra with a cast of Farscape, a science fiction show that was on Sci-Fi Channel, and it was huge. And, uh, I, and I'd always dreamed of New York. I mean, since I was a little kid, I just thought it was fantastic i was like elevators that like took you to trains and underground and i just the mad the lights everything just intrigued me and then i was there and i was living the dream and uh i went to the roxy and got high and just i, I just danced and just it was everything it was perfect it was perfect and then the morning i was like i was gonna miss my flight and then i'm talking to the secretary at the studio and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And 
she tells me a plane crashed into a, a building in New York. And I'm like, what? And so I turn on the television and I see the second plane hitting at that time. And that was my very first time in New York. And so it was like my dream turned into my nightmare. Wow. That, okay. That's something. So spoiler alert, spoiler alert, I shouldn't have told it. Because that's a twist in the book and the story in the book. But that's what, uh, that's what that is. But the book's a lot like it. There are a lot of twists in the book. Yeah. You, um, so I, I did want to touch on, because you are most known for this, this anime show called Ghost Stories. Um, yeah. What is, what is that process been like? Like, because this has really taken on a life of its own much later than, than it aired. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, it, I did it in, in 2005. And then 15 years later, it winds up being this fans or people, or I don't know who, but they started downloading or uploading things to YouTube, whole episodes. But then it would be just like clips and compilation reels and then reactions of people, especially black people watching the show. And because it's very un PC, it offends everybody. It's, I took a children's show that bombed in Japan and turned it into a foul mouth celebrity bashing political charged comedy that was offensive to everyone. And it became a huge hit on the internet it has like, I don't know, one video is just about one joke and it had a million five views two weeks ago and now it has 4 million views. It's just, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Everyone, they just love it. And it's, so weird they quote it they put memes about it and only the hip kids know it and people pray for the shit to happen in their careers and i just can't believe it happened to me and i will say this one thing in my job as an anime writer director i i wrote the scripts and i had to maintain a faithfulness to the original property i did like you know couldn't change anything. This show, they said, do whatever you want. And I was like, do you know who you're talking to? And they said, yes. And so I was like, okay. And I did it totally free, totally me. It was a risk, but I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to be me. And I didn't know that it would hit. I had no idea that my sense of humor would hit with millions and millions of people. And that's what the lesson I learned from that is, is that, you've got to be every time I'm so stupid. It's Hallmark greeting card shit, but you're yourself and you have no idea that fucking like millions of people could be like, that's the guy we were looking for. That's the guy we were waiting for. And you were always timid about showing it. So yeah. it's called ghost stories and you can look at it on YouTube. And, uh, but if you're a little sensitive to, gay jokes, Christian jokes, black jokes, Hispanic jokes, you're not going to like it. It's interesting that even though you've seen popularity and all these people watching it now, um, I don't think a show like that would ever make it to TV nowadays. Oh, no. And that's the big argument on that they talk about in the comments section is like, if this guy did this now, he'd be shot in the head. Or, and, and, and that's what's so weird about it. It seems like they're a lot of the commenters. And I think the reason they like it is I think that I think we're just about ready for the pendulum to swing back the other way that we, we caught it. We were like, yes, me too. Yes. Black lives matter. Yes. 
but there's no sense of humor about anything anymore. And I think the fact that millions of people are liking the show that's not PC, I think it's just our innate nature about like, okay, now can we, can we start making fun of each other again? Can we start like being cool about it instead of being awful about it? And I think this may be a sign that it's going to swing back and we'll temper and the water will be warm enough for everybody to be in. It won't boil. It won't be too cool, but that we'll all just be able to like make jokes and crack jokes about things because comics are like feeling restricted. The stand-up comics are especially are just so they don't know what to do, what to say. And like Dave Chappelle has been very brave about some of the stuff he's done. And he's gotten very in trouble with the trans community because of some of the jokes he's done. But at the same time, it's like other people are going like, okay, you need to lighten up because we're already, you know, a lot of us are still for you. Are for you. And I, it's a bad example because we're not apparently pro-trans yet. But to just know that sometimes a joke is just a joke and there's no really evil intent behind it. Because I know when people say, ah, oh, fag, I know they don't mean anything by it. But if someone else says, you faggot, I know that's totally different. And sometimes you have to look at the heart and the impetus of what the joke is like. At mm -hmm. least that's what I think from a comedian writer standpoint. It's, uh, it's one of the great debates right now, I think. It's like, do we joke about everybody the same or are there levels of protection when it comes to jokes? Well, and, let me ask uh, you this. Do you find, do you, like if you've, like, is there, if there's a sexist joke about like, or a dumb blonde joke or a dead baby joke or something like that, do you, are you offended or do you laugh or do you like, or do you laugh and then catch yourself and think I shouldn't laugh at this or? It's a good question. Um, now, I don't, I don't typically get offended, even if it's a redhead joke. Um, but that, <laughs> that also comes, you know, uh, from a particular point of privilege because I am a straight white man. Like you could say, like kill all white men and i'm like yeah <laughs> like whatever um it just it, like you said it doesn't have that same implication because i have i'm not op oppressed you know i don't face levels of discrimination everywhere i go so you know exactly yeah, I don't, we're white male. yeah so i don't i don't get offended i also you know i just because a, a maybe a comedian or, or a show makes a joke that i find particularly distasteful i i don't i don't cast it out the window but i can also understand while i'm so, i'm a believer in, in free speech and free ideas and everything i also understand you know why people would feel the way they they do about these jokes uh when they are an oppressed you know member of society so just because i'm not like oh we need to cancel all you know hate speech and everything i don't necessarily like believe that but like, I'm like, okay, like, I also understand why, you know, if you could attest to this, that if everyone was like, okay, now, uh, now we need to go kill all redheads now because redhead people are impure, you know, I wouldn't be sitting there being like, all right, guys, like, let's have a nice conversation about this and try to hash it out, right? <laughs> like, I'd be like, you know, we'd be like, no, hell no, you're not killing us because we're redheads. Like, what the hell? So, you know, nope, totally I kind right. of right. come from this, this, and I balance, again, that internal dialogue. I'm like, okay, like, I want free speech. I want ideas because I want to know what, you know, bad people are saying and how they got there. But I also understand why it can be a problem for people of marginalized communities. 
So it's, it's kind of like this, I hear something, I'm like, ooh, yeah, that's going to piss some people off. Like, ooh. Um, but, you know, I'm not personally offended by it. Well, let me, are, do, do, have you accepted your own redheadedness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, it took me for a long time. I was like, it just, I was like, I couldn't stand it. I just was like, oh, I didn't like it at all. And it was more than just like everyone hates their body or hates themselves in some way. But it was just like redheads were like, you know, we weren't always accepted and we were always kind of looked at as freaks. And then I kind of came up to accept it. And there wound up being a lot of people who were like, totally get off on with gingers. That's what, you know, it's a like, fetish. You're yeah. a ginger. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a totally fetish. And so you're like, really? That you were like, into so it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Um, it's perspective. But I've also had, you know, women being like, oh, I can't date you because my mom hates redheads or something. Like, it's kind of one of those things. You never um, told that. No one ever told you that. Yeah, someone did. Of a couple people. Um, a mother? But, they said, my, yeah, I can't date you because of my mother. That's shit. Or That's like, you, you know, it might have been an excuse. But um, well, as a kid, I hated being a redhead and I dyed my hair twice. Yeah. Um, but now, yeah, I've, now it's about me balding that like, I have my issue. <laughs> um, listen, <laughs> you've given me a lot of time, so I really appreciate it. But, um, I do want to end it on like, what's re- reception oh, been sorry. like to this book? Um, how have people responded? You know, that's how great. that's good. Cause it's authentic. You know, like you said, there's some uh, shit in there that's dangerous. Well, people have been very... Uh, the readers have been really very into, I've, I've been very surprised at how people say it's very funny and also they cry. And it's been very interesting finding out where different parts they cry because no one seemed to be tearing up at the same place and that they're all imparting themselves into the book and they're reflecting more on themselves and it's making them think more about themselves and accept themselves better and like themselves more. And, and that's the biggest compliment ever. And my biggest dream for the book was that people would read it and they would go like, you know what? Uh, I'm not alone. I'm this guy's just like me or he survived it. I can survive it or any of those positive feelings, which is great, which is great. If people want to get it, um, where, where can they go? Do you, is it uh, Amazon? Is it on, I don't even know what all the book apps are now uh, in bookstores. Yeah, where, where can people find it? Exclusively on Amazon for two more months and then it'll go wide. And, uh, but yeah, and the audiobook it's, it's available in paper and Kindle and the audiobook will come out as soon as I get in the studio and do it. So maybe like right around Christmas. Oh, that's awesome. And you're going to, you're going to voice it yourself. Yeah, because I'm like, I think fiction should be done by an actor, but if it's nonfiction, the the author has to do it. If you just, suck, and I suck on the mic, it's going to take me forever. And the producer in me is going to want to make all these edits and things like that. And the director in me is going to be mad at me for doing that. And so, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I'm going to try it. So we'll see. Right on. Well, the book is called The Last thank Alias you. Again. True stories and a tale that might be. This has been Stephen Foster. Stephen, thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. I'm glad we did it. Thank you so much, Ryan. You've been amazing. Thank you. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. 
I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to Life in Rabbit.